Well, good morning. It's an honor to be with you guys. Uh, we're going to be in James chapter 1, so if you have a Bible, why don't you find your way to it? I think the verses will be in front of you either way. So I want to talk to you this morning about suffering and how we, the redeemed, walk through suffering. Um, we really don't know the story fully of the person sitting next to you, how they arrived here this morning, what they walked through, what struggle or pain or difficulty may be hidden in their heart this morning. Uh, they may have an easy enough time saying, good morning, how are you? Um, but there may be deep hurt inside of them. And it can be very disorienting for us uh, to sing songs about the care and the kindness and the generosity and the intricate way that God loves us, and then to look and go, but my experience feels like it's like God is distant or quiet, or I don't know what to make of this trial that I'm going through, and I've prayed and prayed and prayed, and I feel like God's not answering. Now, that can be disorienting. And God in his complexity and God in his wisdom has given us uh, many different places in the scriptures where we can look to his word and say, God, show me how to walk through the dark night of my soul. One time when I was working out in California, I worked for Campus Crusade for Christ, and um, I worked for a guy named Josh McDowell, and Josh was moving from California to Dallas, and so I had to make the trek between Dallas and basically San Diego um, several times that spring. And I remember thinking one time as I left uh, the house, it was probably 7 o'clock in the morning, filled up my car with gas, my truck at that time that I had, and I thought, you know, I'm going to drive as far as I can get, and then I'll just find a hotel and I'll stop. And I got to El Paso, Texas at probably 10 o'clock at night after leaving at 7.30 in the morning from San Diego. And I thought, you know what, I think I could drive a little bit further I think I could go, you know, I'm not tired yet, so I'm going to go through El Paso, and I'll just find a place to stop. Now, if you know the landscape, if you know the geography of West Texas, you know what a mistake I made. <laughs> there is nothing in West Texas. It literally felt like a Twilight Zone episode for me as at about midnight, I started to think, you know, I'm tired. I think I'm going to find a place to stop. <laughs> Between El Paso and Dallas, you don't have many options at all. And as I was driving into the night around 2.33 o'clock, my mind started to play tricks on me. I thought, am I really making any progress at all? Because I swear the same lines are right in front of me. I don't think I've passed a sign in three hours. And I remember thinking, is it ever going to end the road was hypnotizing me at that moment. I was making progress. I was getting closer to my destination, but I was alone. I was disoriented in many ways, and I felt like it was never going to end. Now, believe me as I tell you this, because I've done this job long enough to know, sometimes there are people sitting right next to you who would say, that's what my experience is right now. I'm a, I feel alone. I feel like it's very dark, I'm disoriented, and I don't know if I'm making any progress at all. I feel like I keep seeing the same view in front of me, and I'm not sure that anything's changing. Friend, I want to tell you something. God knows where you're at this morning. God sees you, and he loves you. 
And it's my hope and prayer that God will use this sermon to encourage you to keep going, to keep moving, and to keep finding that he is faithful. And I again have to say this, I'm so very grateful that God brought you a pastor. You know, I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful that he and I, I believe, will be good friends like the previous two pastors I'm friends with. I'm so grateful that God has done that. But let's go back to James. How about that? Let's look at it together. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now, I want you to know that James is the first New Testament book written. It's written in 49 A.D., James is uh, what we would refer to, I've heard referred to as the New Testament book of Proverbs. There's 108 verses in the book of James and 54 admonitions. Now hear that again, 108 verses, 54 of them admonitions. So James is giving you uh, an action-packed book. This is what the redeemed live like. James is telling you, if you had to put him in a category, he'd be wisdom literature of the New Testament. And James is not a particularly subtle guy. As James is writing to the church in the dispersion, he comes pretty straightforward at you. He doesn't beat around the bush. He comes straight at it. I don't know if I'd like having lunch with James. James may absolutely just blast you with some truth and go, "Uh uh-huh. You know, I mean, I love you, and that's why I'm giving you this, and it may just come right at you. That's my sense of who James is. James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus himself. He is the first bishop of the church of Jerusalem. This is an important guy, and as he writes this book, he starts out with, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus. Of all the things he could have boasted, a leader in the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, a descendant of David himself, And yet he says, my highest authority, my highest uh, reason that you would listen to me, I'm a servant of the living God. There is no greater uh, goal or ambition or honor than being a servant of the living God. I don't care what you could do for a living. I don't care what awards you could be recognized for. James is, is nailing it right out of the gate to say, I am a servant of the living God. Wherever you are, whatever you do for a living, whatever your vocation, at any given time, in any place on the planet, this is the highest honor, to be a servant of the living God. He says, I am writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's writing to Christians who have been dispersed from where? From Jerusalem. Why were they dispersed from there? Persecution. The church had come under persecution, and in that persecution, they were scattered abroad. Now imagine you're a first century, brand new Christian. You've been saved. You come to the realization, almighty living God, who is creator of all things, uh, the God who we know from Exodus 22 is the, the, the fire smoking on the mountain, We know that that's who he is, and you realize that you've come to faith in him, you've been saved by him, and now you're being told, run for your life, because Roman persecution is hitting Jerusalem. Would that be a head-scratcher to you? I mean, why do I, if God, who created all things and loves me and has saved me, why do I have to run for my life from Roman persecution? Couldn't I just call down fire from heaven, and they need to run? What is this? 
It kind of comes back to this question, God, why do you allow suffering? What is the purpose in suffering? If God loves us, if God is all-powerful, then why these circumstances? James says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Notice it is a circular letter, meaning it's, it's meant to be read. It's meant to travel. It's meant to go to Christians everywhere. Not just to like the First Thessalonian. I'm teaching through that at my church right now. First Thessalonians or the book of First Corinthians, Second Corinthians is written to a particular church. James is writing to the church, to the universal church. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And then right into it. Here in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As I said, he doesn't beat around the bush. After saying greetings, he says to these beleaguered first century Christians, consider it joy, count it joy when you encounter various trials, various types of trials. And wouldn't you almost want to read that the other way around? Consider it joy when you don't have trials. Count it joy when you find that trials have evaded you and you've evaded them and life is good. It, it seems a little bit like it should go the other way around, but what James is saying is, wait a second, you who live on this earth who are redeemed and you're not yet in the presence of God in the paradise that we read about with the thief on the cross, you are not there yet. When you encounter trials of various kinds, count it joy. Count it joy. Now, if you're suffering here today, let me say this. I, I feel for you. I hurt for you. Uh, but I also envy what God is at work doing in you. I know that God has a reason for your difficulties. He says, count it all joy. The word count it joy is actually, in the original language, a word for computation, what he's saying is when trial hits your life, when difficulty comes your way, you need to start thinking. You need to start adding some things up, make a computation, and then come to joy. You're not going to get there just when trial enters. You're going to have to do some thinking. You're going to have to slow down and look at your truths that you know, and you're going to have to hold them up against the circumstances that are in front of you, and you're going to have to look to God and do some reckoning, do some computation, and then come to joy. When you come into trial, and we all do, doesn't matter what you imagine is going on in everybody else's perfect world, it's not. Everybody suffers, everybody faces hardship. It will come into your life. One of the things you need to know that is not going on in that moment is this. You need to know that God is not fed up with you and finally letting you have it. I mean, we all kind of walk around with a low-grade sense of guilt, a low-grade fever, if you will. Like the other night when I was driving around with my daughter Hope and, and we, were, 
we were driving to get, uh, we were going to Chili's and we were going to eat, and all of a sudden, the, these beautiful red and light, some flashing lights were right behind me. And then how peculiar. Oh, yes. And then I started thinking, oh, I think the inspection sticker, I think that tag is out. And I thought, ah, oh, gosh. I mean, but like two months. And I'm like, man, c- c- you know, come on. Cut me some slack. But, I, but you know, you have that sense that, that God is, an, is a cop that's following you, and he just hasn't turned on his lights yet? You know you're doing wrong. You know there's something missed. You know there's something wrong with you. You know there's these things you ought to be doing that you're not. And God's probably fed up with you and had enough, and he's about to let you have it. Listen, let me tell you something. When you come into trial, you should not be thinking God is fed up with me and he's about to let me have it. If that's how God was interacting with us, we'd all be in trouble. Listen, your sins were found out. He read your whole diary, okay? He found out every sin you've ever committed, and your sins were punished that day on the cross. And God is not angry with you. Please hear that. God is not angry with you. His anger towards your sin was exhausted on Jesus that day when he was nailed to the cross. You stand in Christ perfectly redeemed in front of God the Father. Can sin visit hardship in your life? Absolutely, but you need to know this. God is not fed up with you. God is not going to get you. God loves you. You might be thinking, well, maybe it's not that God's fed up with me. Maybe God's just not really paying attention Maybe he doesn't know about my suffering. Maybe his eyes are closed and he's unaware of what's going on in my life. I can promise you, according to Genesis chapter uh, 16, it's where uh, Rahab has run away from Sarah. And she is on the run because she's been mistreated. And there in the midst of that, God comes to her and she says, you are a God who sees. You are the God who sees. God knows where you're at. God understands what's going on in your life. He is attentive. He's not asleep. Reading through Simon Wiesenthal's book, The Sunflower, if you haven't read it, please read it. So encouraging, so intriguing. But in that book, Simon Wiesenthal in the concentration camp, he overhears the conversation of some of the newcomers who had just come out of the ghetto, and one of the ladies that had just come into it said, the truth is, God is on leave God doesn't see what's happening to to us. He doesn't see our suffering. He has gone on vacation and he doesn't care about us anymore. When you face trials, let me say say this with all the clarity I can. It's not that God doesn't see. It's not that God doesn't care. God sees, God cares, God knows. God is attentive to you in the midst of your trial. So what is going on? Well, we find it here in James. He says, When you encountered these various trials, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Your faith, when it's tested, is producing steadfastness. You and I have to go into difficulty to prove and to test our faith in God. Without the testing, our faith doesn't grow strong. It doesn't grow robust. It doesn't grow vibrant. 
But when we are tested by trials, not the kind of trial that we can see the, the exit sign at the very beginning. You know, some trials are like that. So, sometimes you can see right at the very start, well, this is going to take about four days. This is, you know, these little things that enter your life. Even like if you get a cold, you kind of have this sense, hey, there's an exit sign seven days from now, I'm going to be better. But sometimes you come into a trial and you look around you and it's darkness and all you want is to know how long am I going to have to endure this. And I can tell you that I walked into something probably two years ago uh, that has tested me more than anything in my life. And I kept asking God, take this, take this, take this away from me. And I couldn't see the exit. And what happens in the midst of trial? Let me tell you what I think happens in the midst of trial. What you actually trust in is revealed in the trial. When you hit hardship, you lean back on what you trust, right? You, you instinctively lean back on the thing you trust most when trial comes into your life. Whether it be money or your ability to just strategically work through it, as George Bush said, said your strategery, you lean back on that. You lean back on your pretty face, your handsome face. You lean on something that you trust in the midst of your trial. It's just human nature that we would, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our difficulty, lean on the thing we trust most. Now, most of us in this room, if you said, hey, do you trust God? We'd probably say, yeah, I trust him. Okay. I would say that I trust him as well, but I also realize there's an enormous amount of unbelief at work in my heart as well. I trust God. Sometimes I trust God. You know, every now and then if we're on a, like a family road trip and I'm doing most of the driving, and then I say, you know what, I'm really tired. I think I'm going to let my, my, my daughter drive. You know what it feels like when you get in the back seat and your daughter's driving? Are you really going to go to sleep? It's kind of a restless sleep, Right? No offense, teenage drivers, but let me tell you something, you, you, you kind of keep one eye open. Do you trust God? Yes, I do. Okay. How much? When? Where? What are you really relying on when the dark cloud hovers over you? It may be shocking to realize that as God takes you through in his love, he takes you into a trial, and he starts to strip away your false messiahs. He starts to take away from you things that you've relied on, things that might even be good things, but they were not your trust in God. And as you enter into the very difficult times, God starts to show you that you were really leaning on things that you should not have been leaning on. And in the midst of that, guess what happens? You're going to feel like you're dying. You're going to feel like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this in my life? Why are you allowing it for this long? Don't you love me? Have I failed you? Have I done something that's offended you? Is that why this trial is in my life? And you're going to feel like something's being stripped away from you because it is. And you're going to feel like something in you is dying because it is. God loves you so much that he would take away from you your false Messiah. 
And that can be a very disorienting, very painful, very difficult thing to walk through. But let me tell you something. God loves you so much that he wants you to draw near to him and enjoy him and actually trust him. Because if you don't trust God very much, guess what follows? You won't love him very much. If you don't trust him very much, if you don't actually talk to him, if you don't actually turn to him, if you don't actually look to him and his promise and say, God, I need to know more about your promise. I need to know more of your heart because the reality is I feel like I'm trusting in me and in them and not much in you. Trials reveal to us whether or not we really trust in God, how much we trust in God. And as we realize, and you come to this conclusion that maybe you really haven't trusted God with certain things in your life, some things are easy to trust God with. Some of the things in your life, you could very quickly say, God, okay, you can take that, or it's okay if this goes away. But there's other things. We put a death grip on them, and we hold on to them. Why? Because they are what we trust in. And God loves you so much that he will have no foreign God. And he starts to strip, and he starts to pull these things away from you that you have so relied on instead of him. And that can be a very difficult thing. If you look at Abraham early in his life, the father of all who believe, when you look at his life early on, when there's a famine, no problem. He'll run off and go straight to Egypt. There's food down in Egypt. I'm just going to go there. Oh, well, my wife's a beautiful woman, and so I'm going to have to lie. She's going to have to lie. But that's no problem because we can save ourselves by lying. By running down there and by lying anytime we have a problem. That's how we'll save ourselves. That's him early in faith. He's not really trusting God. But you come to Genesis chapter 22 and God says, Abraham, I want you to take your one and only son and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. He gets up early that morning. This is a man who's developed in his faith. He knows the promise of God is good even if he can't understand the circumstances that God is placed him in. I want to tell you this. There are people sitting right next to you, and maybe it's you, who you can't make sense of your circumstances at all. The promise of God is over here, and your circumstances are over here, and you can't seem to bring the two together. And God's saying, trust me, I love you. I've got you. I'm holding on to you. Even though you can't make sense of what I'm doing right now, my promise is still true. I've got you. We refer to it in the network I'm a part of as Glorious Plan C. Glorious Plan C. Here's what it is. Plan A is what you're dreaming of when you're in high school or college about your future. Plan A is you're going to be the next Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or something like that. You're going to start a business and it's going to take off and people are going to want you to come and speak and tell, you, tell them how you did it. That's plan A. Plan B is when you get to the place where you're at, you launch it, and, and you launch your dream and your idea, and you look up and go, well, it's not exactly uh, Microsoft, but at least maybe in this little corner of the world, I'm going to be significant. It's, it's not what I hoped, but I'll take this. Right? Well, what's plan C? Plan C is God's plan. Because plan B isn't going to work out either. 
<laughs> Eventually you look up and go, what are you doing, God? And God is taking away from you your dream, and he's giving you something better, his. And that can be a very difficult thing. You so need people around you at that time. You need your church family around you at that time to help you walk through and navigate through the difficulties of what do I do when all my dreams seem to have just died in front of me? How do I worship God when my heart is broken and I don't know whether or not I can trust him in this moment? Do you know you're safe to actually say that? Do you know you're safe to actually tell God, I'm scared to trust you right now? It feels like everything I've trusted you with has just kind of fallen apart in my hands, and I don't know what you're going to do next. You know, the gospel actually frees you to be honest. God's not surprised when you make a confession like that. He actually already knows. And in the midst of that vulnerability, when you feel exposed, when you feel uh, weak, That is a beautiful place to be because God is about to encounter you in a powerful way and he is building something called steadfastness into your life. And what is steadfastness? What what comes to mind when you think of this word steadfastness? Because that's what God is at work building in you. Steadfastness means sure, dependable, firm, constant, reliable, unwavering. These are the words that should describe your trust in God's promise, sure, dependable, firm, constant, reliable, unwavering. I believe God. It is unwavering. He will come through. He is faithful. And your faith should be described in these words, this steadfastness. It's the idea that a wave could hit you that would normally knock you flat and disorient you completely, but, but, but because you have encountered God in such a deep and profound way, the waves of life hit you and they don't knock you over anymore. You're steadfast. Someone at work undermines you terribly, and rather than panicking and freaking out and trying to figure out how to protect yourself, you just kind of go, it's all right, it'll be all right. You get hit with something that you couldn't even imagine as far as a bill, and you find yourself saying, God, I don't like this, and I don't want this, but you know something? You're going to come through. It may not be the way I was imagining. It may not be the time when I want it. God is seldom early but never late, right? I mean, you would not have ordered the events to look like they do, but you find yourself saying, God, I trust you. I trust that you're going to see me through this. That's called steadfastness. And sometimes, I recently had a a phone call with a guy who was very angry at me. Oh, man, he's cussing and yelling. (laughs) And I remember thinking, this must be what steadfastness feels like. I'm, I'm just thinking that. I'm thinking, I got bigger fish to fry here than this guy's liking me. I remember thinking, it's okay. I told him, I said, look, you're very emotional right now, and I understand that. I said, why don't we talk when you've cooled off and we can actually sit down? (laughs) I remember thinking, it's okay. You're mad. It's okay. But it isn't going to faze me. Why? Steadfastness. Once you've seen the storm, once you've you've done what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was, they go into that fiery furnace. You guys think about them? After they'd gone in there and they encountered God, 
the Son of God with them in the midst of the fire, and they come out of that, how are you going to threaten a guy like that? You know, how do you tell him, hey, you know, if you, if you don't do this in your job, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> and he's thinking, fire. I've been fired. I've been in the fire. I know all about fire. I'm just going to honor God. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And what comes my way comes my way. That's called steadfastness. We need to trust God when we can't understand what's going on. We need to have confidence in his promise. And listen, we can sing songs about that all we want, but right up to the moment where you actually experience the faithfulness of God, that's when the roots of your soul are going to go deep into the promise of God. And no matter what storm hits you, you will have a, a taproot that holds firm in the midst of any storm. You're going to have to go through that. You don't get to read about that in a book and believe it. You actually have to live out that experience of, God, this looks like it's all going to go terrible, and I'm still confident in your promise. That's called steadfastness. But look at what else James says. He says that if you let steadfastness have its full effect, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see it? These words, perfect and complete, telos is one of the words. It means maturity in Christ. That you're growing not just chronologically older every year, but that you're maturing from infancy in Christ into maturity. It's Hebrews chapter 5 says, by now you ought to have been teachers of the word, but you have need for someone else to teach you the elementary truths of the faith. You've come to need milk and not solid food. It's this idea that as you grow in faith and you learn the promise of God, that you're maturing, you're growing. Now, it's a sad thing when you meet somebody, encounter somebody who has been a Christian a very long time, but they have not grown. They have not matured in their faith. They're just chronologically older. They settled somewhere for a lukewarm faith, and they don't know that they can trust God. And because they don't know that they can trust Him, they don't love Him very much. Their love for God is lukewarm. James describes something very different here. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it be completely at work in you so that you can mature in Christ. Now, look at verse, what is that, five? I swear these are getting smaller, like these numbers are getting smaller. But I think it's five. It says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Now, this is really beautiful. If you're at a spot in your life where you look up and say, I don't know what to do. I'm outmatched completely. Oh, man, you are in an enviable spot. Why would that be enviable? Because apparently you tried all your options, you've tried your strategies, and you realize they're not working, they're not going to work, and now I'm going to turn to God, and I'm going to say to God, I can't do this. I don't know what to do. It's too complex for me. You have the promise of God's wisdom right in front of you. The wisdom of God is for you. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives to all generously. He won't reproach, and it will be given to him. 
The wisdom of God is this enormously beautiful gift that God promised to you, promises to you in the midst of your trial. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to make sense of it and just ask God, I need you to show me what I'm supposed to do. I need you to give me understanding and insight and wisdom so that I can walk forward through this trial. No more relying on strategies. No more relying on best friends. No more relying on uh, arguments. I'm turning now to you, God. And you know why that is so beautiful? It's called gospel centrality. That the gospel is not just a message for the non-saved to get saved. It is that. But it's also a message to the believer for sanctification. The gospel is more than just for the non-believer. It's for the Christian. Because when you come to God and you say, God, I am outmatched. I need divine intervention. Guess what? That's a lot like what happened when you came to know the Lord in the first place. You were in over your head. You couldn't rescue yourself. You couldn't fix it. And so you cried out for God and God saved you. Listen, that sweetness of fellowship with God can be yours again when you walk through the trial and you say, God, again, I find myself in over my head, unable to rescue myself. I don't know what to do. And God says, then follow me. Come to me. I'll give you rest. It was a kind of a sweet thing for me, probably, I don't know how many weeks ago it was, it was probably about two months ago, when I finally said to God, don't take me out of this trial, meet me in it, just meet me in it, just come close, let me come close to you, I don't want you to take it away anymore, I just want you to, to, to meet me in the midst of it. I want you to show me your proximity. This is the great difference between Christianity and every other world religion. It's found in the word Emmanuel, God with us. Leaning leaning on him, relying on him, looking to him for strength, for his presence, for his kindness, and for his uh, counsel to guide you. Ask for wisdom, it will be given, but here's the caution. Let him, not, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now that can be kind of an intimidating verse, because what if you pray for wisdom and then you have this doubt come into your mind? Is it short-circuiting the whole thing? No. Here's what I believe James is saying. When you ask God, in the midst of your vulnerability and exposure, God, I I need your wisdom, I need you to show me, and you turn and you find that God is now giving you instruction about money, giving you instruction about time management, giving you instruction about marriage and parenting, and you find that you like it, you're ready to move forward. When you bow the knee in front of God Almighty and say, God, I will follow you, I will submit to you. By your grace, I will spend money and time the way you tell me to. I will interact with my wife in a way that you're asking me to. I think that is wisdom from God. He says, when that gets hard or inconvenient, don't pitch it out. Don't tell God, I want wisdom, so long as it's the kind of wisdom I enjoy. And if it's not convenient and if it's not comfortable, well, I'm going to 
I'm going to abandon it, and I'm going to ask somebody else for wisdom. I'm going to ask somebody else, Dr. Phil, I don't know. Somebody's going to tell me what I want them to tell me and that I can agree with because it will be more comfortable and convenient for me. He says, when you ask God for wisdom, stay with it. Keep walking forward. And when it gets inconvenient and when it gets difficult, don't abandon it. You can't ask God for wisdom up to the point where it costs you something. And then expect that you can all of a sudden find a new course of action and still get the same kind of result. You're not going to. God is calling us to walk with him even when we can't understand it, even when it's not convenient or comfortable, and just keep moving forward. That's what it looks like. But if you every time decide, well, that wasn't really from God. He didn't really tell me that. I'm going to try this other option over here. He says, you're a double-minded person. You're like a wave of the sea. Any good argument can shift you away from God's insight and wisdom and lead you to something else that seems a little bit more practical. My goodness, how many times do we ask God to tell us, give us wisdom or something, and it seems like this inverted wisdom of God is exactly what we don't want to do. (laughs) It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be convenient. It's going to challenge us. And God says, yeah, and trust me. And keep walking. Don't be a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, here's what I find interesting as well. It's this idea that, and I heard Johnny Erickson Tata say this in an interview recently. Uh, She said, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So God may allow something very hard into your life. In her case, paraplegia. He hates that. He hates the the, the way that it affects her body, but it creates in her this dependence and love for God that he loves, and he uses her in that. God may be allowing something that he hates into your life, something that is heinous, something that is dark. It stinks, and you don't want anything to do with it, and you find yourself knee-deep in it, saying, God, why would you allow this? I allowed this because I am accomplishing something I love in your life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on what? You guys know it, many of you, on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. This is Proverbs 3, 5. This is God saying to us, I know you can't see my ways. They're different from your ways. You're going to have to trust me when you can't actually understand some of these things and keep walking. Now, here's something you have to understand. You need other Christians. This is not a solo journey. If you don't have Christian friends in your life, if you don't have somebody you can call and say, pray for me because today I feel like quitting. Today, I want to give up. I want to run for safer, higher ground. If you don't have that, in the midst of that lonely moment, you're going to feel like quitting. And you might even quit. And you need a friend who calls you up and says, hey, I haven't seen you. We call them life group. We haven't seen you for a while. Are you okay? What's going on? They might need you to come and rescue them from their despondency and from their doubt and their fear. There are people that probably wanted to sing out these songs and thought, I just can't today. My heart is too heavy. Who can they say that to? Can they say that to you? 
then you can say to them, it's okay. The promise of God is true, even if you don't feel like it is today. See, this is totally profound and simple, but God already knows he's going to deliver you. You just don't know it. God already sees the deliverance in his hand. You just don't see it yet. God knows that you feel like you've been driving through the darkness for a very long time and you can't see if you're making any progress and you want to just find a safe place to rest. And see, he's saying to you, keep driving, keep going, I'm here. That's why we need the church around us. That's why you need to be not tangentially involved in this church. You need to be fully engaged. You need to be committed to it like it was your kid's soccer practice. Right? Come on, that's one of the idols, isn't it, of the suburbs, right? You know, commit deeply in your schedule to be a part of the life of the church. Because in it is great joy. And you will be the voice of encouragement to somebody that wants to quit. Somebody that wants to give up. These are hard journeys we're on. Between salvation and heaven's door. James says... If you just give up, if you just quit, don't expect to receive anything from God. So what's the inverse? What's the inverted truth of that? If I ask God to give me wisdom, to show me how to walk with him in the light of his word and counsel of his word and the help of the church, if I do that, I should expect that if I don't give up, I'm going to receive something from God. I can expect that his wisdom is right and it's true and it's helpful. And God will do for me things I could never do for myself. I think I've preached long. I'm looking at the clock thinking, and I've got like 30 minutes more of stuff here, <laughs> right? I'll wrap up. I, I want to encourage you today. Having a healthy, vibrant, great church is a rare gift Steward it well. Invest deeply. Give your time, your money, your energy. Give it, give it to the Lord in the midst of this because your life is short on this earth and soon we'll go home. But this short life is difficult sometimes. We need each other. We need the Lord. We need to pray. Pray for your elders. Pray for your leaders. Ask God to encourage them and sustain them. Um, I'll be doing the same for you. It's not uncommon for me to pray at the source for this church the same moment out loud for you as I'm praying for our church as we gather. We'll pray for you. We'll partner with you. But I encourage you, in the midst of your trial, turn to God. Ask him to give you wisdom to develop steadfastness in you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Christ Community Church. I thank you, God, for your kindness to give them a new pastor and a sustained elder board through what was a a very difficult season. And yet you did your work in the church as a whole and in individuals. You did your work that prepares them for a season in front of them that I think is going to be glorious and beautiful. And I pray you would help uh, Ryan and his family get situated, whether it's the sale of houses or buying houses or whatever it is. I pray that new friendships would develop around him and partnership and ministry. And Lord, for the person who's here this morning who is just really discouraged, I pray that you have spoken to their soul today to trust you when they can't see or understand what you're doing. 
and pray that they would learn that they can trust you and out of that a love would just boil up in them, a true love for you that is vibrant and, and Lord, that's contagious. God, I just pray that you would say to the church, say to each person, I'm here and I, I got you. You're going to make it. Keep walking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.